30 House liberals wrote a letter to President Biden that urged him to negotiate directly with Russia to end the war in Ukraine. Now they've withdrawn that letter. We'll hear about the pushback from fellow Democrats and Ukrainian officials that prompted the withdrawal coming up. Today is Tuesday, October 25th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the U.S. Navy's military justice system is facing criticism for mishandling high-profile criminal cases. The Navy needs to have its serious cases, its felony-level cases, prosecuted by the Department of Justice and not by the Navy, just because of its inexperience. We'll have more on calls to reform the system. Medicaid expansion is an issue in the midterm elections next month, and a Moscow appeals court upholds American basketball player Brittany Griner's nine-year-long sentence on drug smuggling charges. It's 4.01. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. President Biden is now up to date on his COVID vaccine. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, he rolled up his sleeve at the White House to spread the word. The new COVID vaccines made to better protect against the BA4 and BA5 Omicron subvariants have been available for nearly two months, but uptake has been slow. President Biden waited to get his dose until three months after his bout of COVID. Get your updated COVID shot. Now's the time to do it. By Halloween, if you can, that's the best time. And that way you can be protected for the holidays. And please, while you're at it, get the flu shot. Fewer than 20 percent of senior citizens have gotten their updated vaccine. The administration is hoping reminder emails from Medicare will help reach that age group. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. After getting his booster in front of reporters and cameras, the president was asked if he believed that Moscow was accusing Ukraine of preparing tactical nuclear weapons because Russia's Putin was himself planning to use a so-called dirty bomb. Biden responded he could not guarantee Russia was engaged in a false flag operation, but he said if Putin did, it would be a serious mistake. A Russian court has rejected U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner's appeal of her nine-year prison sentence for drug possession. The U.S. calls the decision a failure of justice. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has more. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says Russia is wrongfully detaining Griner, and he says securing her release is a priority. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan echoes that, writing in a statement that President Biden is ready to make tough decisions and go to, quote, extraordinary lengths to bring Americans home. The Biden administration has reportedly offered to release Russian arms dealer Victor Boot for Griner and another American, Paul Whelan. U.S officials say they have been in contact with Russia about this, including in recent days. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. In St. Louis, police say an AR-15 style rifle was the weapon that killed a female teacher and a 15-year-old girl yesterday at Central Visual and Performing Arts High School. The 19-year-old former student at the school died in a shootout with officers. St. Louis Interim Police Chief Michael Sachs says he left a note. He wrote, quote, I don't have any friends. I don't have any family. I've never had a girlfriend. I've never had a social life. Sack said the gunman arrived at the scene heavily armed. It appears that he came into the building with more than 600 rounds of ammunition. Seven other people were injured in the attack that forced students to barricade doors, jump from windows, and run out of the building. Approaching the close, the Dow was up 337 points at 31,837. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Former U.S. Transportation Secretary Ray LaHood is pushing Massachusetts lawmakers to form a safety oversight board to keep tabs on the MBTA. LaHood headed a 2019 investigation into the T, and lawmakers called him back today for suggestions on how to reform the agency. WBUR's Simone Rios reports. LaHood told the Joint Transportation Committee that safety management boards are a proven model, though this is the first time he's recommending one for a transit agency. And he says the T needs a zero-tolerance policy when it comes to safety lapses. If there's a guy out in the yard, if he sees another employee that's not following the safety protocols, I think you, you reward people, and may, may, maybe it's a monetary reward. LaHood says that safety culture will pay dividends. He says billions of dollars are available for transit agencies through the federal infrastructure package, but the T needs to be in good standing with the feds to access as much of the money as possible. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. The state education department is investigating claims that the rights of Boston public school children with disabilities are being violated. The complaint was filed last week on behalf of parents and guardians of six students with disabilities. It alleges that children are being denied an education because of chronically late or canceled buses. At today's Department of Elementary and Secondary Education board meeting, State Education Commissioner Jeff Riley said his department is encouraging the district to work with families and advocates to resolve the issue. And the man accused of killing his five-year-old daughter in New Hampshire did not appear in court today as expected. The New Hampshire Attorney General's office confirms that Adam Montgomery waived his right to an arraignment. He was charged yesterday with killing his daughter Harmony in 2019. The little girl was last seen in 2019 when she was five years old. Her disappearance, though, wasn't reported for two years. In the forecast, 64 degrees now. Clouds continue overnight tonight. Light rain still. A little bit of a breeze tonight. Should only fall to about 59 degrees. Tomorrow should be a lot like today. Gray, damp, kind of warm in the mid-60s. And then sunshine arrives for Thursday. 64 degrees now in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off office lunch catering for all occasions in greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. And Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Thirty members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus sent a letter to President Biden on Monday urging him to change his approach on the war in Ukraine and take a more proactive diplomatic push with Russia. But today, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, who leads that caucus, withdrew the letter and she called it a distraction. NPR political reporter Deepa Shivaram joins us now to talk through this back and forth. Hey there. Hi, Juana. So, Deepa, a lot has been happening here, but I want to start with this letter. How did they want the Biden administration to change its strategy? Yeah, progressive Democrats who signed this letter said they want President Biden to focus on direct diplomatic talks with Russia in order to end the war in Ukraine. The members who signed the letter said they wanted Biden to continue providing military and economic support to Ukraine. But they also said that it's, quote, America's responsibility to pursue every diplomatic avenue to help end the war. And the letter is clear that they don't want any decisions to be made on behalf of Ukraine without Ukraine's cooperation 
cooperation. But they also talked about how there are billions of taxpayer dollars going into this conflict in the form of weapons and humanitarian aid. And that ongoing war has contributed to high costs of goods at home, including gas and food. Okay, and what was the reaction like once that letter came out? The response to the letter was pretty critical off the bat. There were several Democrats who came out against it, and even some of the members who signed on to the letter were distancing themselves and saying they were just operating off of the intelligence they had at the time. One Democrat who didn't sign the letter said it was an olive branch to a, quote, war criminal. And a member of Ukraine's parliament tweeted and said she found the letter to be troubling and that you can't negotiate with Putin, who she called a terrorist, when they continue to kill. Okay, and if I'm following this correctly, this letter got sent out Monday, there was all this backlash, and then the letter was retracted today. What was the explanation for withdrawing this letter? The timing here is a little confusing. This letter was dated on October 24th, which was yesterday, but it was actually drafted over the summer. And of course, since then, a lot has changed in regards to the war, and Russia has stepped up their attacks significantly. In fact, some Democrats who signed on to that letter said they wouldn't have signed it today. Representative Jayapal said the reason that the letter got sent out was because it was released by staff without vetting, and she accepted responsibility for that happening. But she also said that because of the timing of the letter, their message to Biden is being incorrectly compared to what some Republicans are saying, which is to decrease aid to Ukraine. For example, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who would likely become the House Speaker if Democrats lose their majority in the election, recently said that Americans won't write a blank check to Ukraine if they're sitting in a recession. And on the flip side, Democrats have been consistently voting to fund support for Ukraine. And that conflation is why Jayapal called the letter a distraction and decided to withdraw it. So the confusing messaging here was also seen as getting in the way when there are some high stakes here for the party, like the midterm elections. Okay. And have we heard anything from the Biden administration about this letter? Yeah, John Kirby, who's the spokesperson for the National Security Council, told reporters yesterday that the administration had received the letter. He said that they appreciated the sentiments expressed, but that the the decision on when and how to negotiate with Russia should be left to Ukraine. And he said at this time, negotiating with Putin isn't much of an option. And when you see when you listen to his rhetoric um, and and you see the other things that the, the, the atrocities, the war crimes, the airstrikes, against civilian infrastructure that the Russians are committing. It's clear Mr. Putin um, is in uh, uh, no mood to negotiate. And Kirby also said that the administration has been working with Congress when it comes to providing support to Ukraine, and they said they'll continue to be transparent. And the White House has also said they'll continue to provide support to Ukraine as long as it takes. NPR's Deepa Shivaram, thank you as always. Thank you. A dozen states have yet to adopt the low-income health care coverage provided by the Affordable Care Act, leaving hundreds of thousands of Americans uninsured. And it's become a driving issue in some statewide political campaigns this election season. Here's NPR's Laura Benshoff with more. About four years ago, Cecilia Spotted Tail, who goes by Biz, felt something growing inside her. I know something's wrong. I know my body. You know, I couldn't lay on my stomach because I kept filling that ball. Spotted Tail is 53 years old. She lives in South Dakota, where she's raised five kids on the Rosebud Indian Reservation. She now runs her own small business. I created a flower farm. My business is called Busy's Bees. Spotted Tail says it took months for a doctor to take her concerns seriously. And she had no health insurance. By the time she would get it removed, 
The benign tumor inside her uterus weighed eight pounds. Spotted Tail scrambled to figure out how to pay for the procedure. First of all, I found out that it would cost about $54,000. To do what exactly? To do the surgery. Her experience speaks to issues with the Indian Health Service, but also what it's like to be one of the millions of uninsured in the U.S. In 2010, the Affordable Care Act started bringing that number down. It increased how many low-income Americans qualify for public health insurance, or Medicaid. But 12 states, including South Dakota, have chosen not to adopt that expansion. Spotted Tail eventually got the surgery. She's become one of the faces of the campaign to expand Medicaid in her state. We live in America, and it's not like we don't have the resources. There's so many different ways that this will benefit South Dakotans. Zach Marcus is the campaign manager for South Dakotans Decide Healthcare. The initiative gets funding from large hospital systems and health-focused nonprofits. It's pushing to expand Medicaid by amending the state's constitution. Marcus says the goal is to close what's known as the coverage gap. We all know someone who is making too much money to qualify for Medicaid and yet still is unable to afford insurance. That includes around 16,000 people living in South Dakota. Putting the expansion on the ballot also bypasses GOP state leadership. I don't support it. I don't think more welfare in South Dakota is going to make it stronger. That's Republican State Senator Lee Schoenbeck, a leading critic of the amendment. Here he is speaking to South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Putting it in the Constitution is way past ridiculous. But five other red states have already expanded Medicaid this way. Polling in South Dakota shows a majority of voters are in favor. Democratic candidates in other states where Medicaid has not expanded are also making it a plank in their platforms. In Texas, candidate for governor Beto O'Rourke put out this ad. When I'm governor, we're expanding Medicaid. We bring $10 billion into communities. We lower your property taxes. People's health above politics. That's why I'm voting for Beto. And in Georgia, Stacey Abrams has hammered her opponent, Governor Brian Kemp. He has decided for the rest of us that we don't deserve access to health care. He has decided for the rest of us that half a million Georgians shouldn't be able to wake up and take care of themselves and their families. Both candidates are trying to unseat GOP incumbents. In both states, polling shows a majority of voters support expanding Medicaid. Cornell University professor Jamila Michner says it makes sense. Democrats want to point that out to woo voters. And it's also more largely one way of trying to create some accountability for elected officials who should not be able to ignore the preferences and the needs of their constituents. Even if Democrats win the governor's office in states like Texas and Georgia, they can't expand Medicaid alone. So far, a few GOP lawmakers are willing to join them. Michener says expanding Medicaid could also impact future elections. Medicaid expansions, at least in the short to medium term, are associated with increased political participation. She says the issue isn't just about physical health, but about the health of U.S. democracy. Laura Benshoff, NPR News.
When Serena Williams played her last match this year at the U.S. Open, it seemed to signal the end of an era for American tennis. But then the newest WTA rankings came out yesterday. Jessica Pegula and Coco Gauff are now ranked number three and four in the world, respectively. It's the first time two Americans have made the top four in the women's pro tour since Serena Williams and her sister Venus in 2010. You know, it is a truth. Sports renews. Um, tennis renews. Liz Clark covers sports for The Washington Post, and she says both young women stand out, but for different reasons. Clark says the narrative surrounding Pagula, who is 28 now, is one of determination. It's not like she's at the dawn of a fascinating career, but it's a, a beautiful narrative for those of us who love those who stick at it, who stay with it. You know, she has not given up. It's a career of tenacity, staying with it. She's playing the best, the smartest she ever has. While Coco Goff, who is just 18 years old, stands out for her grace, power, and passion on and off the court. Of course, every player at that level cares, but you just feel her caring so deeply about her performance and, and what she expects of herself, what she demands of herself. She is also one of the strongest, most forceful, but mature young women I've ever heard, certainly among athletes, when they choose to speak about social justice matters. Liz Clark says that Jessica Pagula and Coco Goff are formidable forces on clay, grass, and hard courts. And she also notes they happen to be doubles partners. They're both ranked top five in the world in doubles. This means they're both very serious about improving their net play, like diversifying their game. On Sunday, Pagula just won her first big-time WTA tournament in Mexico. Goff's ranking, on the other hand, has many thinking back to when they saw another American teen sensation crack the top of the rankings, one named Serena Williams. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, how applying for college can make you crazy and make you grow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a Boston-based nonprofit advocating for climate-smart policies and a net-zero economy. More at ceres.org slash WBUR. Stocks came out on the plus side for a third straight day today. The Dow rose more than 1 percent, that's 337 points, to close at 31,837. S&P picked up 1.63 percent to finish the day at 38.59. The Nasdaq gained 2.25 percent to close at 11,199. We're getting a closer look at what's behind the state's unemployment rate drop. It fell to 3.4 percent last month. Today, the Executive Office of Labor and Workforce Development says local unemployment rate in September fell in 21 labor markets in the state and rose in two market areas. As for the 14,000 jobs added in the state between August and September, the Springfield, Lowell, and Lemister areas saw the biggest gains. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans start as low as $0 per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage. BlueCrossMA.com go. And the Museum of Science, it's time to talk about mental health. Join the conversation at Mental Health Mind Matters, a new groundbreaking exhibit. Tickets at MOS.org.
This Friday at City Space celebrates spooky season with the Endless Thread podcast team as it dives into the weird, wild world of bots. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. 64 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. If you have a college-bound high school senior, or you know one, or you are one, then you know this is the time of year that things get intense. College application deadlines are bearing down like a freight train. Essays and transcripts and SATs and essays and references. And did I mention more essays? The dumpster fire that is senior fall. That's how writer, podcaster, and TV host Kelly Corrigan puts it. She is the mother of two current college students. She recently wrote, yes, an essay about the process of applying to college and about how somehow something beautiful is being formed in that dumpster fire. Kelly Corrigan, welcome. Hey, great to be here. I want to acknowledge a here near the top of the conversation, the the privilege um, in having a conversation about the stress of college and applying to college. And you get to that, you know, that for a lot of people, the financial piece of this is as stressful, if not more than getting good grades or SAT scores. Um, You write about how your kid is about to be the central figure in a shockingly expensive venture with little visibility into what the family can bear. But you argue that for the kid doing the applying, this also forces growth? I mean, I think these are some of the biggest questions a kid has ever asked of him or herself and of his or her parents. So if you're thinking about, is it kind of greedy to want to go to a private school? Is it greedy to want to go to a school that you have to fly to? I don't know what my younger siblings might need. So if I drain the bank account, you know, what's my little sister going to, what options will my little sister have? And I think that might be the first time that many kids are thinking in numbers quite that large. I mean, these are huge, huge numbers. So full disclosure, I have fought in these trenches. Um, My oldest applied to college last year. We will do it all again next year with my second I read with supreme recognition the section of your essay headlined, College Fear is Based on a Lie. What's the lie? The lie is that this is it, that this is a binary moment, and that if you, if you get to the University of Stretch Dream goal, everything will unfold accordingly. And if you don't, you're kind of screwed. Like it's just going to, the world is going to be an uphill battle for you for the rest of your days. And I feel it. I, I know that that's the idea that's circulating in hallways and classrooms. I know that most parents say the word college way too many times before the fall of their kid's senior year, where you can't just take it back with one statement. Like if you've been noting your whole life, and I only say this from experience, who went to what college, 
And then your kids are starting to look at schools and you say, it doesn't matter where you go, you'll be successful wherever you go. The kid's thinking, right, but why did you bring it up every time? Why have I been hearing about it for 15 years if it doesn't matter? Like, of course it matters. So I think for the parents of younger children, one thing I would say is make a decision with your co-parent about how many times you're going to say the word college. You got to start early <laughs> on the self-discipline. Of course, because yeah. they're here. The children will listen. Huh. How You said, I say all this based on experience. How did these conversations unfold in your house? You know, I really feel like at some level we blew it, to be totally honest, because it did come up a lot. It came up too much. I mean, we both really liked college. I felt lucky that my husband got an early decision to his dream school, which is a lot of people's dream school, Yale. And I got rejected by every school except for the one I went to, University of Richmond. And I went with, like, tears in my eyes. And it was awesome. I had the best experience. So I felt lucky that I could say to my children, look, you might be me. It might turn out that you're standing in the driveway with a rejection letters hanging from both hands. And you may drag yourself to some school that you don't think is right for you. But that's not the end of the story. That's the lie, is that the story ends there, in the driveway with the rejection letters. The truth is, the story unfolds every day, and a lot of it's based on what you do. One of the lines from your essay that will stick with me is this. I will quote, If we agree that any one acceptance letter is not the prize, what could the reward be? Developing comfort with uncertainty, expanding self-knowledge, building new capacities and a sense of agency, because that kind of personal growth is not too much to ask of this process, and what a grand outcome that would be. That's such a lovely way of thinking about it. Well, what a grand outcome that would be. I know, but you know, you're fighting a culture that's sending a different message. So sometimes I think about all the voices that are in my kid's head in a given day. So that's everything that the sort of commercial entities are throwing their way, everything they're getting, all those um, mailers that they get throughout the fall that could fill a recycle bin, all the things they're hearing between classes from friends and whatever their college counselors are telling them. And then I'm just this tiny voice saying, you're growing right now. This is it. What you're doing right now is the stuff of greatness. But, you know, I'm like one person trying to underline one part of their existence. I mean, it's worth trying, but it's also humbling to think about the chorus of voices that's telling them otherwise, that's telling them that it's, this is only about the outcome. Well, and also the temptation, I suppose, um, for parents to get in there, roll up their sleeves and help. And it sounds like where you landed was the key. The whole point is for both parents and kids to figure out, uh-uh, it's, it's got to be the kid leading. It's not about the parents jumping in to help. You know, it's interesting. We're doing a series on Kelly Corrigan Wonders right now called Live from College. And so I'm talking to kids who are all the way into school looking back on this process. And I will tell you that every kid says, my mom thought I should go here. My dad really wanted me to go here. I mean, my dad practically wrote the essay so that I would go here. Like <laughs> kids end up in schools they don't want to be in and that they might transfer from because they felt it coming through, the message loud and clear. 
your father really wants you to go to such and such. Your mother would be so excited if you ended up at blah de blah So the more you get involved, the more the, the blood's on your hands if it doesn't work. The more involved we are in our kids' lives, the less satisfaction they get to take from their achievements. Like every time we get involved, we steal that sense of satisfaction that's possible in big undertakings like this. It's the writer Kelly Corrigan. She hosts the podcast Kelly Corrigan Wonders and the PBS program Tell Me More. Thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still to come on All Things Considered, the U.S. Navy's military justice system is facing criticism for mishandling certain high-profile cases. We'll hear about that coming up. In the forecast, cloudy, foggy, and damp again tonight, dipping to the upper 50s. Keep the umbrella around for another 24 hours anyway, because tomorrow should be a lot like today's been. Thunderstorms, some heavy rain now and then, about 64 for a high. Thursday, none of that. Should be sunny, breezy, mild, up around 70 degrees. The Bruins continue their homestand tonight at the Garden as the Dallas Stars come to town. The puck drops at 7 o'clock. Tomorrow night's Powerball jackpot is now the eighth largest in U.S. history. The purse has increased to an estimated $700 million after nobody won the big prize last night. Powerball, <coughs> excuse me, Powerball was last hit on August 3rd. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual open house November 30th, buacademy.org. You know, pay transparency laws aren't just going to reduce secrecy. It also creates a real demand for employers to have rational pay-setting processes that they can explain, that they can defend. I'm Kai Rizdal, paying people what they are worth next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The White House is urging people to get up to date on their COVID-19 shots as the colder winter weather approaches and folks move back indoors. President Biden got his latest booster today. It targets the original coronavirus strain, as well as the various Omicron subvariants currently circulating. This virus is constantly changing. New variants have emerged here in the U.S. and around the world. We've seen cases of hospitalizations rise in Europe in recent weeks, and the weather is getting colder. People will spend more time indoors, and contagious viruses uh, and uh, like COVID are going to spread considerably more easily. The new booster has been available to the public for weeks, but so far only 20 million people have gotten the updated vaccine. The White House COVID-19 response coordinator says getting the shot is the best way to avoid spreading the virus during the winter months. 
House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is planning to meet with Ukrainian officials during a summit in Croatia focused on Russian aggression against Ukraine. Here's NPR's Franco Ordonez. The Zagreb summit will focus on the recent Russian invasion as well as its 2014 annexation of Crimea. Pelosi says she is joining European allies and other partners in Croatia to deliver an unmistakable statement of solidarity with the Ukrainian people. She added in a statement, quote, Vladimir Putin is waging an unprovoked all-out assault on Ukraine. She calls his attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure appalling. The gathering comes more than eight months into Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In recent weeks, Ukraine has successfully recaptured wide swaths of territory that had been occupied by the Russians. Pelosi visited Ukraine earlier this year and has been a strong supporter of U.S. aid for Ukraine. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullen. Senator Elizabeth Warren and Congresswoman Anna Presley are traversing the state today to encourage people to apply for the federal student loan forgiveness program. They say eligible borrowers in Massachusetts could have as much as $20,000 in student loans canceled. WBUR's Vanessa Ochovillo reports from their first stop in Boston. At the Grove Hall Library in Dorchester, the two lawmakers celebrated the millions of Americans who already signed up for the program. But Warren says their goal is to get all 800,000 eligible borrowers in Massachusetts to apply before the December 31st deadline. Volunteers were on site to sign people up, and Warren and Presley touted the short application process. Their tour continued on to Brockton, Worcester, and Springfield. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochevillio. Boston police are investigating reports of a man with a gun at a school athletic field in Charlestown. Police say they got the call shortly after 1.30 or 1 o'clock today. They found a man who fit the suspect's description but did not find a gun. The incident led to a brief lockdown of Charleston High School. The Worcester officials are debating what to do with the statue of Christopher Columbus outside the city's train station. City Councilor Sarai Rivera is leading an effort to have it removed. She calls it oppressive. We want to grow. We want to move forward. We want to pat ourselves on the back to say Worcester is a diverse city. You know, Worcester is a welcoming city. Let's make sure we are for everyone and what that means. The city council meets tonight to talk about whether the statue should stay or go. The Rhode Island Public Transit Authority is being sued by two people whose personal information was compromised when the agency's computer system was hacked last year. The breach affected employees, retirees, and some former state workers. The suit also names United Healthcare, which administered the state employee health plan, was compromised when it was compromised. Defendants are seeking monetary damages. They also want the court to order the transit authority to strengthen its cybersecurity security safeguards. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Chestnut Hill School, leading the way in elementary education since 1860. Grow today, transform tomorrow. On the web at tchs.org. Clouds keep on keeping on tonight. Light rain overnight, a little bit of a breeze should only fall to about 59 tonight. Tomorrow, gray, damp, up in the mid-60s, and Thursday could have temperatures reaching 70 degrees, sunshine pretty much all day Thursday. 63 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity, with Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow. 
so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. It's not the outcome that Brittany Greiner or her family and supporters were hoping for today in Moscow. An appeals court upheld Greiner's nine-year sentence on drug smuggling charges. The decision means she will now begin serving out her term in a prison colony. Yet it also may kickstart negotiations aimed at gaining her freedom. NPR's Charles Maines has been following this case from the beginning, and he's on the line now from Moscow. Hi there. Hi there. So, Charles, fill us in if you can. What was Brittany Griner hoping to achieve today, and what was her legal strategy? Well, I'm sure Brittany Griner would have loved all charges dropped, but she went into today saying she expected no miracles, uh, but did hope for a lesser sentence. Now, Griner wasn't actually at the courthouse. Uh, she was watching the proceedings remotely by video feed from a detention center outside Moscow uh, using a court-appointed translator, which can be kind of a glitchy process. Uh, but when Griner did have a chance to speak, she pointed to the support that she had from Russian teammates and fans in uh, Katernberg, the town she plays in, uh, in, in the Russian League. She noted this episode uh, was an honest mistake and that the substance, this hash oil, uh, was medicinal and there wasn't even much of it, less than a gram. And she said, look, even then I accepted responsibility and admitted my guilt, and yet none of this mattered in the first trial. She got close to the maximum sentence. Let's listen. I really hope that the court will adjust this sentence because it's been a very, very stressful and very traumatic to my mental and psyche being away from my family and not being able to communicate. And of course, the appeals panel of judges rejected all those arguments, uh, except for shaving off a bit of time served. Uh, the nine-year sentence remains in force. And Charles, there are a lot of people calling for Greiner's release. President Joe Biden says his administration is not letting up on efforts to that end. How have they reacted there in Moscow and to the degree that you're aware in the United States? Yeah, you know, the WNBA Players Association issued a statement that said this was proof of the political nature of the case. Uh, it said They said it showed that Griner was very clearly a hostage and a political pawn. Uh, and U.S. officials basically agree with them on that point. Uh, US, the U.S. Embassy's Deputy Chief of Mission, Elizabeth Rood, uh, was just one of a host of American officials who denounced the ruling. Uh, here she is talking to reporters outside the courthouse in Moscow. Nothing in the previous sentence, nothing in the result of today's appeal changes the fact that the United States government considers Ms. Greiner to be wrongfully detained. It's been nine months since Greiner was first detained, so her case has really unfolded against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine and a collapse in U.S.-Russian relations. And yet, we hear that the White House wants a prisoner exchange. Charles, does that seem feasible? You know, U.S. officials say talks have been going on behind the scenes, which is how the Russian government wants it. Uh, but there's always been this snag. You know, the White House says it's put out a substantial offer in exchange for Griner and another jailed American, a former Marine named Paul Whelan. Uh, that's widely reported to involve a suggested trade for a convicted Russian arms dealer, a man named Victor Boot. Uh, meanwhile, the Kremlin has insisted that Greiner's trial had to come to a close before that could happen. And today's ruling would seem to satisfy that condition. So for Brittany Greiner, the hope here is that, yes, uh, today's ruling means one door has closed, uh, but just maybe another one opens. That's NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Thank you. Thank you. 
Over the past couple years, the Navy has lost its most high-profile legal cases, including a recent arson case involving the USS Bonham Richard. Advocates say the verdict shows military justice is ripe for reform. From San Diego, reporter Steve Walsh explains. Flanked by his legal team, Seaman Apprentice Ryan Sawyer Mays recently stood outside a Navy courtroom in San Diego. The judge had just declared him not guilty of setting the 2020 fire that destroyed the $1 billion warship, the USS Bonham Richard. The past two years have been the hardest two years of my entire life as a young man. I've lost friends, I've lost time with family, and my entire Navy career was ruined. Vice Admiral Stephen Kohler had ordered the case go to court-martial, even though a hearing officer had already determined that the Navy didn't have enough evidence to convict Mays. One of Mays's former attorneys, Gary Barthel, says giving commanders that discretion has become a problem for military justice. They're making their decisions not on leadership principles and not on facts, but based on political fallout that may impact their own career. In the same courtroom in San Diego in 2019, SEAL Eddie Gallagher was acquitted of war crimes in the killing of a young detainee in Syria. This despite testimony from his own unit and a photo Gallagher texted of him holding the body saying, I got him with my hunting knife. An outside team of defense lawyers poked holes in the Navy's case while President Trump tweeted support for Gallagher. Rachel Van Landingham is a former Air Force attorney. She says military lawyers are qualified but they lack experience. And the entire system, military justice system within the Navy, is simply not experienced enough and not resourced appropriately to be able to handle to handle serious level cases. The overall number of courts martial has steadily declined among all the services over the last two decades. There were 110 courts martial in the entire Navy last year. Van Landingham says that same year, Federal prosecutors in the Southern District of California alone charged more than 3,000 felony cases. I fully believe that the Navy needs to have its serious cases, its felony-level cases, prosecuted by the Department of Justice and not by the Navy, just because of its inexperience. The long-running cop drama NCIS and its spin-offs have been on TV for nearly two decades. That makes the production far more seasoned than most agents in the real-world NCIS, according to Don Christensen, a former Air Force prosecutor. I know they got a TV show, but should we be relying on them when we had the Federal Bureau of Investigation that can investigate these crimes, or the local investigators that can investigate these crimes? Without the volume of cases, investigators from Navy Criminal Investigative Service cannot get enough experience with major crimes, he says. In the Bonham Richard case, an NCIS agent testified that they stopped investigating a second suspect in part because they mistakenly believed they didn't have jurisdiction after he left the Navy. They make a lot of mistakes. There's a lot of times they don't see the evidence that they should see. The reality is 90 to 95 percent of the case is decided by the investigation. Christensen is with Protect Our Defenders, which has lobbied Congress to reform military justice, a move driven mainly by how the services have handled sexual assault cases. Next year, sexual assault, along with 10 other major felonies, will be required to go through a special panel that reports directly to the secretary of each service. The reforms don't go far enough for advocates who want a complete overhaul, especially in cases like the massive ship fire. Again, law professor Rachel Van Landingham. These are systemic structural defects that are built into the system. And until those change, I think we're going to continue to see 
um, debacles like this one. But tradition, she says, is hard to overcome. For NPR News, I'm Steve Walsh in San Diego. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. President Biden rolled up his sleeve in front of reporters at the White House today to get one of the new COVID-19 boosters. The event was part of the administration's campaign to encourage more people to get one of these new boosters before yet another possible surge hits the country. Now's the time to do it. By Halloween, if you can, that's the best time. And that way you can be protected for the holidays. But the federal government's push comes as new research is raising questions about whether the new shots are any better than the old ones. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein joins us now with the details. Hey, Rob. Hey there. So these new boosters are the first to target the Omicron variant, and they're being promoted as providing better protection than the original shots. So what do these new studies tell us? Yeah, you might remember that these new boosters were authorized without any direct data about how well they work. To save time, the authorizations were based on how well shots aimed at an earlier Omicron subvariant stimulated the immune system and on tests on mice. So these new studies provide the first direct data from people. Researchers at Columbia and Harvard compared how the immune systems of volunteers responded to the new bivalent boosters versus the original vaccine. Dr. David Ho at Columbia says the Research suggests that the new shots may not be all that much better than the old ones. To our disappointment, the bivalent vaccine did not show superiority over the original vaccine. About a month after getting the shots, the new boosters did not stimulate significantly higher levels of antibodies that could neutralize the Omicron sum variants infecting most people right now. Okay, so Rob, does this mean people should not bother getting these new boosters? No, 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 not at all. First of all, some researchers say the jury is still out about how effective the new boosters are. Deepta Bhattacharya at the University of Arizona says the new studies were too small and too short to reach any firm conclusions. For those who are saying, Cece, I told you so, I would say let's stand down a little bit and wait for some cleaner data to come out because these studies can't be used to support really one argument or another. Even if the new boosters aren't any better than the original vaccine, they still look like they're at least just as good at helping restore some of the immunity that has faded since people got their last shots or infections, and that could be life-saving, especially for those who are most vulnerable, like the elderly. And, you know, there's still the possibility that bigger, longer studies could show the new boosters are superior, that they could provide maybe longer-lasting immunity or even possibly help people fight off new variants that might emerge. But Dr. John Wary at the University of Pennsylvania says people have to be realistic about just how much better they might be. It's a little bit of a sort of a reality check or a reset that the bivalent vaccines are not a magic bullet. They're not going to give us, you know, perfect protection from these new Omicron variants that are circulating. So people can't let down their guard just because they've gotten one of these new boosters. And Rob, I've got to ask you, so far, are people lining up to get these new boosters? 
You know, so far, not really. Only about 20 million people have gotten one of these new boosters, even though more than 200 million people have been eligible since Labor Day. And that's a big concern, especially with immunity fading, new, even more possibly contagious Omicron subvariants on the rise, and another possible wave of infections possibly coming soon. Okay, NPR health correspondent Rob Stein, thank you. You bet. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up next on WBUR, we visit a conflict zone where physicians are having to reuse gloves, use expired medications, and deny patients care because of a lack of resources and power. That's just ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welland Montessori School, a Boston parent's family favorite, toddler to grade 8. Inspire, challenge, empower. Open house November 6th. Register at Welland.org. In sports tonight, it'll be the Bruins versus the Dallas Stars at the TD Garden, 7 o'clock start time. And the forecast, another dank day leads to another dank night tonight. Overnight lows about 59 degrees, not too far from where they are right now, in fact. Tomorrow, more of the same. Cloudy skies, showers, thunderstorms, maybe a few real downpours tomorrow. Again, it should be in the mid-60s. Thursday, a day worth waiting for. Bright autumn sunshine, temperatures creeping up to about 70 degrees. Sun could return on Friday, but it should be chilly once again. In the Boston area, 63 degrees now. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 449. WBUR supporters include BU College of Fine Arts with Actor Shakespeare Project, presenting Let the Right One In at Booth Theater. More at bu.edu slash CFA. You know, it's almost like you know, running an election is like uh, running a long race. But now we're running a race where people are running out of the bleachers and trying to tackle us. And it's like, to, to what end? Is success that we just don't run the election? Is success that we throw up our hands and say, you know, we quit? I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Spiraling out of control. That is how UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has described the ongoing civil war in Ethiopia. Here he is speaking at the UN Security Council. Violence and destruction have reached alarming levels. The social fabric is being ripped apart. The conflict in Tigray started nearly two years ago, and a recent U.N. report accused all parties involved of committing war crimes and crimes against humanity. Hundreds of thousands have died and millions of people have been displaced. NPR's Ari Daniel joins us now to discuss another casualty of this war, Tigray's health system. Hey, Ari. Thanks for having me, Elsa. Well, thanks for being with us. Can you just remind us who who is fighting whom in, in this civil war? Well, this is basically a power struggle between the Tigray People's Liberation Front, that's the party that controls Ethiopia's northern Tigray region, and the Ethiopian government forces and their allies. And it's turned into an incredibly bloody war. I connected with some researchers in Belgium at Rent University who've been tracking the situation in Tigray, and they estimate there could be up to 600,000 people who've died, millions displaced, and that for those who remain, poverty and starvation are rampant. 
One NGO told me, and I quote, the scale of human suffering has few parallels. And I imagine that suffering is only made worse when medical care isn't available, right? Like, you've been looking into the war's impact specifically on health workers and hospitals. Can you talk to us more about that? Yes, yes. So they've been targeted in this war. And right now, according to the Tigray Health Bureau, more than 80% of the hospitals have been damaged or destroyed. Rural clinics are pretty much non-operational. I spoke with Lindsey Green, and she's with Physicians for Human Rights. It's not easy getting information out of Tigray because it's under a blockade, but her group is in contact with health workers on the ground. We've heard of healthcare facilities that have been destroyed and looted. There are very few that are still able to function, and that is with little to no supply of, of medicine. So doctors are giving patients expired medications, Elsa, including anesthesia. One surgeon told me at times it's wearing off mid-surgery. Oh my God. He said he feels like he's doing medieval medicine. And those who've been wounded in the fighting or victims of the widespread sexual violence, there's very little, if anything, to help them. Well, I know that you have been able to speak directly to a, a number of health workers who are in Tigray. What else are they telling you about the situation? So I was able to contact people in Tigray's capital, Mikella. Medical care is better there than in the rural areas, but not by much. One woman I spoke to is a physician, and she asked me not to use her name for her own safety and for fear that her family might be arrested or interrogated. She told me that earlier this year, she was pregnant with her third child. And as her due date got closer, power in the city was going out constantly, even at the hospital where she planned to give birth. Most of the time, it was running out of uh, light, and it had no enough fuel for the generator to be turned on. She was terrified that she'd end up delivering in the middle of the night in the dark. She was especially worried because she'd had serious bleeding in the past following childbirth. If anything happens, it will be difficult because they cannot see where, where I'm bleeding from. And if they can't see where she's bleeding, they can't fix the problem. That's right. In fact, there's a study under review right now. It's got UN backing. One of the authors told me they're finding women in Tigray are dying during pregnancy and after birth at a rate that's five times higher than before the war. So you can see that when a health system crumbles, so much gets lost in its wake. Just think about chronic diseases. I spoke with 52-year-old Burhan Hailu. She lives in Mikella, and she has type 2 diabetes. A hospital staff member is translating for her here. My main job now is worrying about my disease because I have uh, children. I fear I may die, so they will be alone. No one will take care of them. Insulin is so hard to come by that Burhan says she often goes without it. You can hear in her voice just how upsetting this is. Even our physicians, including the nurses, are crying in front of us because they don't have something to give for us. One of those nurses is Atseda Gide. She's 35 and works at Eider Hospital, a place that used to see some 5,000 diabetes patients before the war. That's my duty to come to the hospital to treat my patients. But I am coming here to say there is no drug in the hospital. My patients, when you see them, you see full of urine in, in their legs. 
And that's because without sufficient insulin, there can be a loss of bladder control. Right. And ultimately, without treatment, diabetes can be deadly. This all sounds so incredibly dreadful. I- I'm almost afraid to ask, Ari, what happened to the pregnant mother you mentioned earlier? Yes, I, I was hoping we could come back to that. And don't worry, Elsa, it's actually good news. Okay. So as her due date grew closer and there was routinely no power at night, she did the only thing she could think of. She charged her solar-powered flashlight in the sun each day. And then this past June, she went into labor. And on that particular night, the power remarkably stayed on. She didn't need that flashlight. And at five in the morning, she gave birth to a healthy baby boy. <laughs> she sent me this recording of her and her new son. It's a blessing to have a baby, so I'm happy. A glimmer of light. That is NPR's global health reporter, Ari Daniel. Thank you so much, Ari. You're welcome, Elsa. While fighting does continue in the Tigray region, the two sides finally sat down in South Africa today for the start of their most formal peace talks to date. The talks are mediated by the African Union. The United Nations and representatives from the U.S. are also there as observers. The negotiations are now taking on new urgency against the backdrop of the humanitarian crisis in the region nearly two years into the conflict. One-time fictional space traveler William Shatner became a real-life space traveler last year on a Blue Origin space flight. After, he said, the experience of watching our planet from afar gave him a feeling of profound sadness. What I would love to do is to communicate as much as possible the jeopardy, the vulnerability. It's so small. And while Shatner's experience is rare, it turns out his feelings, well, they're pretty common among astronauts. Hear more on today's episode of Consider This. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
The Boston Bruins continue their homestand tonight at the Dallas as the Dallas Stars come to the Garden. Puck drops at 7 o'clock tonight. In the forecast, cloudy, foggy tonight in the upper 50s. And for tomorrow, cloudy, foggy once again. Temperatures about 64 degrees for a high. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by CIC Innovation Campus, committed to reimagining the office for the needs of today's workforce. Flexible office space tours available at CIC.com enterprise. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Rishi Sunak officially has become Prime Minister of Great Britain, the first Prime Minister of Colour. There hasn't been a lot of fanfare, though. The day-to-day crises that the country has to face has dampened the enthusiasm of having an individual of colour to lead the country. Today is Tuesday, October 25th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Italy has sworn in its first female prime minister. Her party's roots emerged from the ashes of Italy's fascist movement. Former Defense Secretary Ash Carter has died. He was known for opening military ground combat jobs to women and pushing the Pentagon to invest in technology. Carter was also director of the Belfer Center at the Harvard Kennedy School. And following pressure, Adidas has cut ties with Kanye West after he made anti-Semitic comments. These stories and Wall Street numbers, the street was up once again. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is delivering a stark warning to Russia in response to its unfounded claims Ukraine is preparing to use a so-called dirty bomb in its own territory. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the U.S. and other Western nations are accusing Moscow of using it as a pretext for escalation. U.S. officials say there's been no change in Russia's nuclear posture and no indication that it tends to unleash a bomb that would release radiation on impact. Speaking at the White House, President Biden warned of consequences if Moscow deviates. Russia would be making an incredibly serious mistake if we were to use a tactical nuclear weapon. I'm not guaranteeing you that it's a false flag operation yet. Don't know. Russia has accused Ukraine of preparing to use a dirty bomb, a claim that Western nations, including the United States, have rejected as transparently false. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The House January 6th committee is meeting with former President Trump Communications Director Hope Hicks. NPR's Claudio Grisales reports the plans come after the panel issued a subpoena for Trump last week. Hope Hicks served as Communications Director for about one year early on in the Trump administration. She later returned to the Trump White House as counselor to the president during Trump's final year in office. Hicks so far has not featured prominently in the January 6th committee hearings or in findings shared by the panel. Members and staff of the select committee declined to comment beforehand about what Hicks might have to contribute. Last week, the panel subpoenaed Trump himself for testimony and documents, but he is not expected to cooperate. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, 
Washington. Heads of some of the biggest banks in the U.S. are in Saudi Arabia for a three-day investment conference nicknamed Davos in the Desert. As NPR's David Gurra explains, it takes place when U.S.-Saudi relations are at a low. The CEOs of J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, and Wells Fargo are participating in the event. Saudi Arabia has more than half a trillion dollars in its government-run investment fund, and this conference is a chance for the country to talk about its ambitions and for investors and executives to make deals on the sidelines. But there is political tension, given Saudi Arabia's human rights record, and its relationship with the U.S. government is strained. After the country pushed for the cut in oil production by OPEC Plus earlier this month, followed President Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia at a time when energy prices are higher because of the fallout from the war in Ukraine. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Consumers are less confident this month. The business research group, the Conference Board, reporting its Consumer Confidence Index fell more than five points in October. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 337 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Commissioner of Elementary and Secondary Education is laying out his goals for the rest of the school year. At today's board meeting, Jeff Riley said he would like to continue to expand early literacy programs, after-school efforts, summer school, and early college. His comments came on the heels of test results published yesterday that show Massachusetts students lost ground during the pandemic. Riley also said he hopes to build a more diverse and culturally responsive workforce. Harvard professor and former U.S. Secretary of Defense Ash Carter has died. Carter was defense secretary during the Obama administration. In December 2015, he announced that women would be able to serve in combat positions in the U.S. military. They'll be able to serve as Army Rangers and Green Berets, Navy SEALs, Marine Corps Infantry, Air Force Parajumpers, and everything else that was previously open only to men. The dean of Harvard's Kennedy School of Government says that Carter passed away last night after he suffered a heart attack. He was 68 years old. Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden is throwing his support behind ballot question four on the November ballot. The initiative would keep in place a new law that allows undocumented people to obtain driver's licenses in the state. Hayden says the law, approved by state lawmakers in May, keeps roads safe by ensuring that all drivers are tested, licensed, and insured. Opponents say the law regards migrants who broke the law by being in the country illegally. They also say it could lead to voter fraud, a claim the Secretary of State's office dismisses. Cambridge is eliminating parking minimums for newly constructed buildings. Previous rules required developers to provide a certain number of off-street spaces proportional to the number of residential units in a building. City Councilor Mark McGovern says the new policy will help Cambridge add more housing and green space. We have to really start thinking about what our relationship is with parking. You don't get to park in front of your house necessarily. You might have to park, you know, a couple hundred feet away. And, you know, that's part of living in a in a diverse and exciting city. Backers of the plan also say homes without parking could be cheaper to buy or rent. Skeptics say the new rules could cause the city to run out of necessary parking spots. In the forecast, pretty gray overnight tonight. Look for temperatures to be just about... Uh, the upper 50s. Then for tomorrow, another cloudy gray day, downpours around the mid-60s. Tomorrow should be, or Thursday, that is, sunshine should be a beautiful day. Highs about 70. This is WBUR. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a privacy company committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer private search and tracker blocking with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Well, it took the resignations of two prime ministers and the withdrawal of all the other candidates. But today, Rishi Sunak has ascended to become prime minister of Great Britain. It is only right to explain why I'm standing here as your new prime minister. Right now, our country is facing a profound economic crisis. Sunak rose in British politics as the former top official of the Treasury, and now he takes the helm of a country that is in economic turmoil. And he has become the first person of color to lead the country. Sunak is of Indian descent. His parents emigrated from East Africa, but he didn't bring any of that up in his speech today, nor was any of that prominently celebrated across the country to the extent it might have been here in the U.S., To talk more about this, I'm joined now by Professor Avinash Palival. He's a senior lecturer at SOAS University of London. Welcome. Thank you. So given the milestone of Rishi Sunak becoming the first person of color to become prime minister in the United Kingdom, why hasn't there been greater fanfare in the country about his race? His race has been noted by the people in United Kingdom, it is being talked about. The significance of the moment is being appreciated. But we need to appreciate also the fact that the wider electorate in the United Kingdom is very exhausted. It is exhausted by the cost of living crisis. It's exhausted by the fact that the political leadership cannot get its act together globally when you're facing the Russia-Ukraine war, among other things, and you're still kind of figuring out the after effects of Brexit. So these are the day-to-day routine crises that the country has to face under the Conservatives over the past three years is something that has kind of dampened the enthusiasm of having an individual who is of color to lead the country. And then there is the fact that there is a degree of discomfort within certain sections of Tory voters. Tory supporters have openly voiced their discomfort of having someone of color to take office, uh, going as far as calling Rishi Sunak not being British thanks to his skin color. Right. I mean, you are basically saying that for Rishi Sunak, his skin color is a political liability given the party that he leads now. It probably could become, yes, and it could become an increasing liability if he fails at delivering, if the policy measures that he introduces do not address some of the structural problems that this country is facing. Rishi Sunak would be judged much more harshly than perhaps Boris Johnson or even Liz Truss ever were. Yes. Could another factor to explain why Rishi Sunak has not made his race, his ethnic background, part of his driving political story. Could another factor be his personal wealth? I mean, he is quite wealthy. Some estimate that his personal wealth uh, is greater than even that of King Charles's. Do you think Sunak's economic class shapes how people in Britain see him more than his race does? Most certainly. I think class is very important a factor. You're looking at an individual who has been educated in some of the most expensive private schools in the country, who has had access to to resources, personal and political, which many other people, especially coming from minority communities, perhaps don't have readily so. And that degree of class cushion that comes with that kind of wealth perhaps protects 
someone like Rishi Sunak, but not just him, from racial politics, the brunt of racial politics in the United Kingdom in a daily, in a routine sense. I think that will change from now on. I think Rishi will have to deal with the race question much more openly now that he holds the public office. Let me ask you, as a person of color yourself, how does it feel for you personally to see someone like Rishi Sunak rise to become prime minister? It's bittersweet. It's sweet because it's very good to see someone who's not, you know, a person of color, a minority from a minority community lead office, and especially someone of Indian heritage. I myself, um, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm an Indian. So so that is something which is very nice to see. It would instill a lot of faith among many people from different communities, not just South Asian, to have that kind of ambition in the future. So that is something which is worth celebrating. And I completely, you know, I'm very happy about that. But it also underscores that you need to have the kind of wealth that Rishi has to be able to protect yourself and to rise to the position within a party like the Conservative Party to become the prime minister. So it also, you know, the parameters that are needed for someone who comes from these communities to even reach that stage are just too high. Class still matters. Yeah, absolutely. Avinash Polyval, professor at SOAS University of London, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me here. Adidas is severing ties with Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, after days of pressure. This will end its long-running Yeezy collaboration with the artist, who has made numerous anti-Semitic and other offensive comments recently. NPR's Alina Seljuk is here to tell us more. Hey there. Hello, hello. Alina, there's been a lot going on, so can you just start by catching us up on what's been happening? Well, for the past few weeks, companies have been cutting ties with Ye. Uh, Balenciaga, his bank, JP Morgan Chase, his talent agency. Um, that's earlier this month, how it started is he showed up at the Paris Fashion Week in a T-shirt that said, White Lives Matter, which is a slogan attributed to white supremacist groups. Then he went on these anti-Semitic rants online and interviews, perpetuating these old bigoted conspiracies about Jewish people. He got suspended from Instagram and Twitter. But Adidas said it put his partnership with Ye under review and then silence. On the podcast, Drink Champs, Ye even taunted Adidas. I can say anti-Semitic things and Adidas can't drop me. Now what? After weeks of that silence, Adidas finally announced it's splitting with Ye today, calling his actions unacceptable, hateful, dangerous, saying it will stop producing Yeezy products. And Elena, why do you think it took Adidas so much longer than all of these other companies that had relationships with Ye and severed them? Its partnership with Ye is massive. It's almost 10 years old. Um, Adidas says ending it will cost the company a quarter billion dollars in profits just this year. The Yeezy brand made Kanye West a billionaire, but it also made Adidas huge, Um, especially with sneaker collectors. People would camp out to buy these limited drops, which actually happened just this past week. In the middle of all this controversy, Adidas had a sellout drop of the latest Yeezys. Okay, so how did all of this increased scrutiny of Adidas, the company. You know, 
While Adidas stayed silent, critics sort of filled in that vacuum, digging into its past. And this is a German company whose founder had been a Nazi. His name is Adolf Dossler, also known as Adi Dossler. He and his brother were famous after the 1936 Berlin Olympics, where they made shoes for the German team, also for the American track legend Jesse Owens. During World War II, the Dossler factory was used to manufacture munitions for the Nazis. A few years after the war, Adi launched Adidas. His brother actually started rival Puma. And you would think this dark history would raise the stakes for Adidas to quickly stop any perception that it's ignoring anti-Semitism. That's what crisis PR expert Eric Yaverbaum told me. The thing about the spotlight is it is a moment in time when you can do the right thing. So yeah, they cut their ties. That's only the first step. What's the second step? Will there be one? So what do we know, Alina, about what the next step is for Adidas? The company promises more details in a couple of weeks. It's worth noting that all these corporate deals that Ye had, companies for years sort of skated around his provocative, disturbing, offensive behavior. And we'll see how long it remains a liability for Adidas in this case. NPR's Alina Seljuk, thank you. Thank you. Ash Carter, who served as defense secretary under the Obama administration, has died. He had a heart attack and was 68 years old. Carter was a physicist and weapons expert, and he oversaw the initial U.S. strikes against the Islamic State. But as NPR's Tom Bowman reports, Carter will best be known for opening up ground combat jobs to women. Seven years ago, Carter went to the Pentagon briefing room and announced that women would no longer be barred from ground combat jobs, infantry, armor, and artillery. As long as they qualify and meet the standards, women will now be able to contribute to our mission in ways they could not before. The move was opposed among some in the military, particularly the Marine Corps. The Marines conducted a year-long study that found gender-integrated units were slower, less lethal, and more prone to injury than all male units. Marine officers also said accepting women would lead to greater risk, meaning more combat casualties. But Carter saw it differently and indicated the Marine study failed to focus on individual achievement. And those advocating women in ground combat roles said the study did not pinpoint high-achieving women. Teams do matter, and we need to take that into account. And at the same time, the capabilities of the individual to contribute are extremely important. Today, a small number of women are part of both Marine and Army infantry units, and more than 100 have passed the grueling Army Ranger training. Carter served earlier as the top Pentagon weapons buyer, and later as Defense Secretary focused on research and development, reaching out to Silicon Valley and saying the Pentagon was not spending enough on innovation. He created a Defense Innovation Unit that he said would put new technologies in the hands of warfighters. His family said in a statement that though Carter was known for his keen sense of military technology, nuclear weapons, and international affairs, he loved nothing more than visiting troops, making frequent trips to Iraq and Afghanistan. Tom Bowman, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the National Institutes of Health reports an increased risk of hormone-related cancers in people who use chemicals to straighten their, their hair. That story is just ahead. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual open house November 30th, buacademy.org. Stocks came out on the plus side for a third straight day today. The Dow rose more than 1 percent. That's 337 points. It ended the day at 31,837. S&P picked up 1.63 percent to finish the day at 38.59. The Nasdaq gained two and a quarter percent to close at 11,199. We're getting a closer look at what's behind the state's unemployment rate drop. It fell to 3.4 percent last month. Today, the Executive Office of Labor and Workforce Development says Local unemployment rates in September fell in 21 labor markets in the state and rose in two market areas. As for the 14,000 jobs added in the state between August and September, the Springfield, Lowell, and Lemonster areas saw the biggest gains. Marketplace has all this day's news in business coming up at 6.30. It's now 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballets, as anticipated with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere November 3rd to 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Cloudy, rainy tonight, about 59 for low. Tomorrow, cloudy, rainy once again in the mid-60s. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. This weekend, Georgia Maloney was sworn in as Italy's first female prime minister and leader of the country's most right-wing government since the end of World War II. NPR's Sylvia Pajoli reports that Maloney is the leader of a party with roots in the ashes of fascism. At a rally in Rome in 2019, right-wing party leader Giorgia Meloni forcefully told the world who she is. I am Giorgia. I'm a woman. I'm a mother. I'm Italian. I'm Christian, she said, and you're not going to take that away from me. As a teenager, Meloni dressed as a hobbit. Like many young Italians attracted to the legacy of fascism, Meloni was infatuated by the Lord of the Rings. Meloni's friend and right-wing intellectual Pietrangelo Buttafuoco says the fantasy world of J.R.R. Tolkien offered an alternative to the ideologies of the 20th century. In Tolkien, the great spiritual dimension of Europe prevails over the Enlightenment and secularism that tried to erase the past, claiming the future is always better than what went before, like today's cancel culture. Meloni has repeatedly rejected the fascist label. In an interview with NPR in 2020, she insisted her party is firmly grounded in the Western conservative movement. We are working with all the people who want to defend identity, who want to defend the real economy, who want to defend the borders, who want to defend family, with all the parties who agree with us upon some very important issues. Nicoletta Pirozzi, an EU expert at Rome's International Affairs Institute, says many of those issues might put her at odds with the European Union. 
They include opposition to marriage equality, gay parents adopting children, and surrogate motherhood. She never put the feminist uh, agenda at the forefront of her political uh, career or political message. A recurrent criticism of Brothers of Italy, Meloni's party, is the tricolor flame logo that harks back to the party's authoritarian roots. It offers plausible deniability because it wasn't a primary fascist symbol. Rutgers University professor Corey Brennan is the author of a book on fascist symbols. The flame is an appeal, he says, to keep alive the spirit of dictator Benito Mussolini. The way it was designed is extremely unsettling. When you look closely, you see rising in this mounting flame is an M for Mussolini. Very, very clever, but it's also ambiguous enough. We never felt the guilt for fascism, never looked into the abyss. Antonio Scurati is author of M, Son of the Century, a novel about Mussolini and the rise of fascism. Scurati says he wrote it because he felt the need to strengthen readers' repulsion for fascism. We never dealt with it because the only way to deal with it is to take responsibility for that and say, okay, we have been fascists. Now, most of the Italians were fascists. During the campaign, after Meloni was repeatedly pressed to explain her view of fascism, she sent a video to members of the international media in English, French, and Spanish, but not in Italian. She said the Italian right consigned fascism to history long ago. Unambiguously condemning the suppression of democracy and the ignominious anti-Jewish laws. What she said in that video was not a condemnation of fascism per se, was a condemnation of suppression of democracy. But not of the entire violent legacy of the 20-year dictatorship, says Federico Fubini, editorialist at the Daily Corriere della Sera. He believes Italy's institutions and constitution are strong enough to resist a return to authoritarianism, and only a minority of Meloni's voters are diehard fascists. But Fubini worries about an overall deterioration in the quality of Italian democracy. I would say most people are not fascists, but are not anti-fascists either. They consider that experience just part of Italy's history, and that's all. They are not horrified and indignant about what happened, as maybe we should be. Commentators have pointed out the Prime Minister's use of populist and nativist language, favoring the interests of native-born inhabitants over those of immigrants, such as patriot instead of citizen, nation instead of country. And coincidentally, Meloni's first week in office falls during the 100th anniversary of Mussolini's March on Rome, the insurrection that marked the start of the fascist dictatorship. Silvia Podroli, NPR News, Rome. A new study finds that women who often use hair-straightening chemicals may face higher risk of uterine cancer. A majority of those who report using these products are black women. NPR's Alana Wise has more. The National Institutes of Health reported an increased risk of uterine cancer in people who use hair-straightening chemicals. Among women who use these products, often called perms or relaxers, the risk of developing uterine cancer more than doubled. 
These treatments are especially popular among Black women. Dr. Alexandra White, the lead author on the study, noted the risk of developing uterine cancer is relatively small. We found that among women who, when they enrolled in the study, told us that they were frequent users of the hair straightening products, meaning that they use them more than four times a year, they had about over double the risk of uterine cancer. The research project analyzed data from tens of thousands of sisters to women with a breast cancer diagnosis. Over the 11-year study, 378 cases of uterine cancer were diagnosed. We know that certain formulations of straighteners can release formaldehyde when heated, and in our study, we found that 60% of those who reported using these products were Black women. The NIH study comes amid mounting pressure from Black women to address the way natural, curly, and kinky hair is viewed in society. Black women have often been pressured to conform to a standard of Eurocentric beauty trends or face public rejection and limited employment opportunities. Society made us feel like we had to look a certain way. That was Nicarta Jackson, a Maryland stylist who specializes in black hair. Sometimes we're not happy with having a kinkier hair texture, and then we are conditioned to feel like someone that has straight hair has good hair. But many women are now embracing their natural hair. Cancer-causing chemicals, Jackson says, are a big reason why. Chemical hair treatments that would once last her hair shop only a couple weeks now sit much longer, as fewer of her clients go for the permed look. A lot of people are afraid to get chemicals in their hair now because of cancer. I used to have like an eight-pound relaxer, which lasts me for two weeks. Now I can have an eight-pound relaxer just sit there for months. The same sister study also found an increased risk of both breast and ovarian cancers linked to hair dyes and chemical straighteners. Cynthia Judge is a Black 74-year-old woman who has survived both breast and ovarian cancer. Like many women her age, Judge had her hair chemically processed for most of her life, though it's impossible to say whether these processes had any effect on her diagnoses. Black women can possibly get uterine cancer as a result of long time using um, perms. That was a little disconcerting to me. Judge, who now works at a breast health center in Las Vegas, said she would advise women to keep on top of their health. The things that we fear most are the things that we need to just put our feet together and just deal with it because it is our life, it is our health, and we want to to stay around for those we love and those who love us. When caught early, the five-year survival rate of uterine cancer is more than 80%. Alana Wise, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Cloudy, foggy, damp again tonight, dipping to the upper 50s. Keep the umbrella on standby for about another 24 hours because tomorrow could be a lot like today. Thunderstorms, some heavy rain now and then tomorrow, about 64 for high. Thursday, none of that. Should be sunny, breezy, and mild, up around 70 degrees. It is 63 degrees now in the Boston area. State lottery sales continue to slide. Officials say the sales in September were down $40 million, nearly 9%. For the first three months of the fiscal year, they're down nearly 4% compared to the same period of last year. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham. With pumpkins, gourds, fall decor, and spring-blooming bulbs in stock now for your garden. VolanteFarms.com. You know, it's almost like you know, running an election is like uh, running a long race. But now we're running a race where people are 
running out of the bleachers and trying to tackle us. And it's like, to, to what end? Is success that we just don't run the election? Is success that we throw up our hands and say, you know, we quit? I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. St. Louis police say the former student who opened fire at Central Performing Arts High School yesterday, killing a teacher and a 15-year-old girl, was armed with an AR-15-style rifle and enough ammunition to take out the entire student body. He had seven magazines of ammunition on a chest rig that he wore. He also had an additional eight magazines of ammunition in a field bag that he had carried. St. Louis Interim Police Chief Michael Sachs says 19-year-old Orlando Harris left a note behind describing what he called a perfect storm for a mass shooter. He wrote, quote, I don't have any friends. I don't have any family. I've never had a girlfriend. I've never had a social life. Sachs says anyone who may be suffering in a similar way should reach out to get the help they need. A Russian appeals court has upheld American basketball star Brittany Griner's nine-year sentence on drug smuggling charges. That decision means Griner will now be sent to a Russian prison colony. As NPR's Charles Maines tells us, Moscow and Washington appear ready to restart talks about a possible prisoner exchange. Brittany Griner was listening to a video feed from a detention center outside Moscow when the three-judge panel gave its ruling. The court rejected Griner's argument she made an honest mistake in accidentally bringing a small amount of medicinal hash oil into Russia in February. The U.S. officials denounced the ruling as another sham judicial proceeding, even as the stage now appears set to renew talks aimed at gaining her release. The White House has made what it calls a substantial offer, widely reported to involve a convicted Russian arms dealer in exchange for Griner and another jailed American, former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan. The Kremlin has said it's open to a deal, but only after Griner's trial had come to a formal close. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street. The Dow gained 337 points, up more than 1%. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Former U.S. Transportation Secretary Ray LaHood is recommending that Massachusetts lawmakers form a safety oversight board to keep tabs on the MBTA. LaHood headed a 2019 investigation into the T, and lawmakers called him back today for suggestions on how to reform the agency. WBUR Simon Rios has more. LaHood told the Joint Transportation Committee that safety management boards are a proven model, though this is the first time he's recommending one for a transit agency. And he says the T needs a zero-tolerance policy when it comes to safety lapses. If there's a guy out in the yard, if he sees another employee that's not following the safety protocols, I think you, you reward people, and may, may, maybe it's a monetary reward. LaHood says that safety culture will pay dividends. He says billions of dollars are available for transit agencies through the federal infrastructure package, but the T needs to be in good standing with the feds to access as much of the money as possible. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. The state education department is investigating claims that the rights of Boston public school children with disabilities are being violated. The complaint was filed last week on behalf of the parents and guardians of six students with disabilities. It alleges that children are being denied an education because of chronically late or canceled buses. 
State Education Commissioner Jeff Riley said today his department is encouraging the district to work with families and advocates to resolve the issue. A middle school teacher in Stoneham is on paid leave amid an investigation into suspected misconduct at a previous job. The town superintendent of schools says the teacher faces allegations that stem from his work decades ago at a school district in Florida. Officials will not elaborate but say the allegations are serious and are now being investigated. A man accused of killing his young daughter in New Hampshire did not appear in court today as expected. The New Hampshire Attorney General says Adam Montgomery waived his right to arraignment. He was charged yesterday with killing his daughter, five-year-old Harmony. The little girl was last seen in 2019, but her disappearance was not reported for two years. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Clouds keep on keeping on. Light rain overnight tonight. A little breeze should fall to about 59 tonight. Tomorrow, a lot like today. Gray, damp, kind of warm in the mid-60s. Then Thursday, a big change-up. Sunny skies, unseasonably warm temperatures could make it to 70 degrees on Thursday. 63 degrees now in Boston. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. And from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. This year has been the deadliest that Palestinians have experienced for many years in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. And today, they saw the single bloodiest confrontation yet. Many thousands of Palestinians gathered for a funeral march, shooting guns in the air. This is what it sounded like. They were honoring five Palestinians killed today in an Israeli special forces operation targeting the lion's den. They're a new militant group of young Palestinian men. We have NPR's Daniel Estrin on the line. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Elsa. So what exactly happened today? This was a rare Israeli operation in the Kasbah of Nablus. This is the old city, uh, which during the day is a pretty colorful place. These are shops that sell specialty cheese desserts and halva. But this is also a place that provides cover for armed militants um, with all of their narrow alleyways. And so usually Israeli troops don't enter the Kasbah of Nablus. But today before dawn, they did. Uh, Israeli troops used shoulder-launched missiles. Israel says it also shot at Palestinians throwing stones at troops. And uh, the result, five Palestinians killed in one Israeli operation. That is a very big number. Israel says it was targeting the leader of the lion's den. And tell us more about the lion's den, because this is a group that we haven't heard much about yet. Right. It's a renegade band of young teens and men in their 20s, mostly, in the city of Nablus. They are approximately about 50 or 100 of them only. So small in number, but very big in influence. (laughs) Uh, They have been 
taking up arms and shooting at Israeli military positions. Israel says they killed a soldier recently. And when I speak to activists in Nablus, um, even I spoke to the father of one of these militants, people there say that these are young men, part of a young generation of Palestinians who feel that they simply have little to lose. They have come of age in a hopeless time for Palestinians under occupation. They experience friction with settlers and soldiers. They have enormous contempt for the aging Palestinian leadership, which they don't see as offering them any way forward, any future, any hope. They feel that they are not being protected from army raids. And so they say to their own police, well, if you don't protect us, we will. And so they take up guns. And that's what we're seeing. Well, then what now after this deadly raid? Like, are we looking at the start of some kind of Palestinian uprising, you think? This is not the level of what we saw in the early 2000s, the Intifada, when we saw suicide bombings and massive Israeli incursions. This is more of a dynamic of a vacuum of leadership in the West Bank. And this also provides a glimpse of what may yet to come. We are seeing the old guard, the Palestinian Authority, losing credibility. They have been for years, but they are losing control now over many parts of the West Bank. And these young militants are are becoming more assertive. And they're going viral On TikTok, recently this group, the Lion's Den, made calls on social media, go out at a certain time and shout, uh, God is greatest. And many Palestinians did. Take a listen. And so the real significance of this armed group is not its low numbers or the pretty low level of deadly violence that it is committed. The significance, Elsa, is the inspiration that they spark in Palestinians throughout the West Bank. They are stars. They're considered heroes. That is NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Thank you so much, Daniel. You are welcome. With temperatures plummeting in Europe, tensions are heating up over the skyrocketing price of electricity. Russia's war in Ukraine has left vulnerable countries who up until now had been relying on Russia for energy. And now they are struggling to find alternatives as their citizens grow frustrated. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports from the Czech capital of Prague. Protesters waving Czech flags and beating on drums interrupt the serene surroundings of the Prague Castle, perched on a hill overlooking the spires and alleys of this medieval city. Tourists gawk and snap pictures. Protester Lebuse Svekova waves her flag in response. The energy prices are unbelievable here. This government is destroying us. Energy companies think we're sheep just accepting these high prices while they increase their own salaries. Only a few hundred people show up to this weekday protest, but weekend demonstrations over the past month have attracted tens of thousands of angry citizens demanding the government do more to lower their energy bills. They're also railing against Ukrainian refugees and European sanctions on Russia. Government officials say organizers are part of the Kremlin's disinformation campaign, whether they know it or not. But according to Europe's Household Energy Price Index, the Czech Republic does have some of the highest prices for energy in Europe. People are paying nearly 10 times more for electricity than they were a year ago. Outside the city's electric company, customers brace themselves for sticker shock as they line up to pay their bills. 75-year-old Mariana Volna says she's doing whatever she can to reduce her consumption. I've changed all my bulbs to LEDs, and I only cook vegetarian because it requires less time and gas. 
Before Russia's war in Ukraine, the Czech Republic relied on Russia for nearly all its natural gas. It's been this way for nearly a decade. In that time, the Czech government did entertain buying from other sources, but at every juncture, it chose to maintain total reliance on Russia. Some people were lazy, some people were incompetent, some people didn't care, some people didn't care because they don't want to work. Yaroslav Mil is former CEO of CEZ, the country's largest utility. He says the current Czech government is far more competent. Since the war began, it successfully replaced Russian natural gas with gas arriving from elsewhere in Europe. Fortunately, the new government was really acting very, very fast. It's a really good, very good move. Quite frankly, it's a, it's a brilliant move. These new gas contracts mean Czech storage facilities are now 90% full, enough for around two months at current consumption rates. This winter, we think that we can manage, I would say, e- not easily, but we can manage it. Deputy Minister of Trade and Industry Rene Nadella is helping manage the country's new energy plan, which includes setting a cap on energy prices and incentivizing households who use less energy. If you are motivated and if you will reduce you know, your consumption by more than 20 percent, then we will cover the whole cost. But Czech economist David Marek is concerned about the country's long-term energy future. He says government's fix is a good short-term solution, but the Czech Republic needs something more permanent. But the problem is that it could take uh, three, four, five years. We can survive this winter. But the main question is, what about next? Back in front of Prague's electric company, retiree Lida Fatova stands in line to pay her bill. She says if electricity costs get too high, she'll move to her cottage in the countryside and burn wood she cuts herself for heat. But she says she supports cutting off energy if it comes from Russia. All these higher costs, she says, electricity, inflation, and so on, if this is the price for peace in my country, she says, then I'm ready to pay that. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Prague. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Are there any circumstances under which slavery is permissible? That is a question voters in five states will consider on Election Day. Many state constitutions still have wording that allows for slavery as punishment for a crime. And as NPR's Katia Riddle reports, some are working to eliminate this exemption through ballot measures. For years, Troy Ramsey thought he would spend the rest of his life in prison. He was incarcerated for more than two decades for aggravated murder. Now he's reinventing himself with things like volunteering on this political campaign. So Measure 112 is to take slavery and involuntary servitude out of our Oregon Constitution. So, yeah, just, you know, have a few of those and you can pass out to some people that come through the office. Yeah. Many voters he talks to are horrified to learn the word slavery is even in the Oregon Constitution. Yeah. Good Lord. Yeah, so vote yes this November. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery in 1865, but it still includes an exception for involuntary servitude as punishment. Many state constitutions use similar wording. Ramsey says that has implications for people in prison today. 
a lot of uh, officers and stuff use that language against you while you're in there, you know, that they're allowed to treat you the, uh, the inhumane way that they treat you. Just because someone is incarcerated and is being held accountable for a crime doesn't mean that they should be treated as a slave. Sandy Chung is with the ACLU of Oregon. The state's ballot measure would remove language allowing for slavery and involuntary servitude as punishment. Vermont, Louisiana, Alabama, and Tennessee will vote on similar measures. Chung says it's overdue. After the Civil War, many states, including Oregon, codified racism against Black people, you know, jailed them at much higher levels and made them work basically as slaves, as part of prison systems. National advocates for undoing these laws argue that even though prisoners are no longer considered slaves, they are often treated as such with low pay and poor working conditions. But some in law enforcement are concerned these measures would increase the cost of prison work programs. Either they'd have to start paying competitive wages and create jobs for literally every inmate in prison. Joshua Marquis is a former district attorney in Oregon. He wants to make clear he does not endorse slavery. The measure does not specify that prisoners make minimum wage, but he warns it could be interpreted that way and be expensive. That's literally a 100% increase in the cost. The Oregon State Sheriff's Association has a similar concern. The group did not respond to requests for interviews, but they've written a statement in opposition. They warned the measure would create, quote, unintended consequences and increase costs. It doesn't even sound right. Savannah Eldridge is with Abolish Slavery National Network. She characterizes their opposition this way. We know it's wrong, but we can't afford to end slavery. Eldridge says it's essentially a Civil War era argument against ending slavery. Utah, Colorado, and Nebraska have already passed similar measures. None has increased prisoner pay. Former prisoner Troy Ramsey says he was thrilled when he was asked to volunteer on this campaign. And I was like, yes, I can. He'll be handing out flyers right up to November 8th. This is me doing my part. Ramsey is doing it for his brothers, still behind bars. They may be incarcerated, he says, but they aren't enslaved. Katie Riddle, NPR News, Portland. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, the new documentary, Descendant. It follows the descendants of the survivors on the last known slave ship to arrive in the U.S. And tonight at 7 o'clock, it's on point. Russia invaded Ukraine eight months ago, seemingly unprepared for how fortified Ukraine was to defend itself. We'll hear how the war in Ukraine might come to an end. That's tonight and on point, starting at 7 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Book Festival in Copley Square on Saturday, October 29th. Subjects range from The Body Keeps the Score to Finding Joy. And hear from authors Dr. Deborah Burks on the pandemic to Moshe Safdie on architecture. From memoir and history to fantasy and mystery, there's something for everyone, including the kids. BostonBookFest.org. In the forecast for the next 24 hours, same as the last 24 hours, overcast skies tonight, intermittent showers, lows around 59. Tomorrow, cloudy skies, showers, thunderstorms, maybe a few real downpours, again in the mid-60s tomorrow. Thursday should be a day worth waiting for. Bright autumn sunshine, temperatures creeping up to about 70. Sunshine could return for Friday, but it should turn chilly once again. 63 degrees now in Boston at 549.
Why would a cancer treatment cost a thousand times more than it used to? He told me the price. I'm like, what are you talking about? No, it couldn't be 38,000. That's ridiculous. How even with insurance, one patient wound up with an astronomical debt and what others can do to head off a sky-high medical bill on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. For generations, the story of the slave ship Clotilda had taken on an almost mythical status. It was long rumored to have been the last slave ship to arrive in the U.S., but evidence of its wreckage eluded researchers for decades. Until one day in 2019. They found the Clotilde. They found the Clotilde. They did confirm that it is the ship. I know it's on 159 years earlier, in 1860, the ship arrived in Mobile Bay, Alabama, carrying more than 100 Africans. The U.S. at that point had outlawed the international slave trade more than a half century before, but that didn't stop one wealthy man in Mobile from hatching an ambitious plan. Timothy Mayer, a local businessman, went and got a bunch of Africans and brought us, brought them back here to the mouth of the Mobile River, just let them off the boat and burned the ship to conceal the crime. That's Vita Tunstall in the new documentary, Descendant, which focuses on the slave ship and her survivors. Some of those survivors founded the all-black community of Africatown after the Civil War ended. Many of their descendants still live there. Earlier this year, after a Sundance screening, I spoke with filmmaker Margaret Brown and Clotilde descendant Vita Tunstall. Vita told me she only started learning about the Clotilde fairly recently, about 10 years ago. But the thing is, I've known my history all my life. My great aunt Doodle, you know, she lived in Africa Town. It wasn't called Africa Town, it was just Plateau. Right, Plateau. I knew things about where my ancestors came from, but nobody sat down and said, we are descendants of the Clotilde. Our people are from Benin, Nigeria, Ghana, wherever we're from. They never said that. So just in the last few years, we're like, oh, okay, put this piece from that year together and this piece, and now we know the story, but we've heard it all our lives. Well, now that the ship's remains have been discovered, even though you always knew what the truth was, does the actual physical discovery of the remains reshape your family's story in any way to you? It really just validates to the rest of the world that this is true, and it has made the world look at Africatown and the descendants in a whole different way, uh, because they never really thought anything about this story. It's just like Native local folklore, but now, you know, it's on the worldwide stage, so they have to pay attention to it. Descendant is about the rediscovery of the Clotilda and what happened in Mobile more than 100 years ago. And it's about the way that history has continued to ripple into the present. You see, the Mayer family are still major landowners in the area. Their name, their imprint, it's everywhere. Here's filmmaker Margaret Brown, who's white. There's a scene where we're driving around the neighborhood and there's just Chippewa Lake signs everywhere. So when you're there, it's just a very visible thing. The Mayer family land is called Chippewa Lakes. There's a sign. That's another one right there. They're like right next to each other. I think the city also owns a lot of land in Africatown. So, you know, you can see these contours of injustice like still going along the same lines. And that injustice 
is not just about who owns the land, but what is on the land and how that's affecting the health and well-being of the black residents who live there today. Africatown is completely surrounded every direction by some form of heavy industry. For years, the community there has been concerned about the high rates of cancer and recurring mysterious illnesses in their community. There was a lead smelter in Africatown. There was a DOD hazardous waste dump in Africatown. Then you had International Paper Company. You have Back in 2017, a group of residents filed a class action lawsuit over industrial pollution, alleging that harmful chemicals were created and released by the International Paper Company's plant, which was built on land owned by the Mayer family. The lawsuit was settled in 2020. I asked filmmaker Margaret Brown to talk about the connection she sees between the Clotilda and the pollution still impacting the community today. Cancer clusters are kind of hard to quote unquote prove, but what you can say is certain polluters are dumping toxic chemicals at a rate that we know to be cancerous in a neighborhood. Yeah. And that is certainly like was happening around Africa town. Like there's still so many things today that like you wouldn't want to put your house next to. There's also just a lot of noise pollution. Like, how do you sleep when there's factory alarm going off next to your house? Um, yeah. There was no way I could not put it in the film, knowing as many people as I did in the community that had gotten cancer and knowing how much was released into the water and the air around that community. But the heart of Africatown is with its people and their descendants. And as Vita Tunstall says, the discovery of the Clotilda has helped people in her community deepen their own understanding of their own personal histories. It caused kind of mixed feelings at first. I felt like I should know these things, but then at the same time, I'm grateful somebody is able to put it together for me. You know, my son saw this film and it opened up a great conversation between the two of us. So I was able to explain things to him in ways that I wasn't able to before. Like what? So I was able, I've told him who we're descended from. We're descendants of Poli and Rose Allen. And I've explained to him about Poli Allen's first wife and second wife and who the children are, about the mayors. You know, he, he had never heard of the mayors either. And he was thinking, now that just makes me wonder if I know anybody with that last name. Just made it really personal. It opened our eyes a lot. Yeah. Well, you know, the discovery of the ruins of the Clotilda, it has brought into sharper focus this larger question about reparations. And Vita, after knowing more about your family's history, knowing more about what happened in the last 160 years, what would justice look like for you? I know that's a huge question, but what would you like to see happen to acknowledge the Clotilda? This is a question I've been pondering for about the last three or four years. Reparations is so difficult. It's so complex. There's really no way to repay all of us for all the harm that was done. The fact that I've never set foot on my homeland through no fault of my own, who knows how that can be repaid. Um, at this point, I just feel like Africa town, you know, the mayor's brought us here. Investment back into that community is definitely a way to repay some of the damage to make this community self-sustaining again. If Africa town could get this community back that feels a little like justice to me. That's just a start. I think that's just a start. Well, I know that a museum for the Clotilda is underway in Africatown. What do you think is the best way to remember the Clotilda today? I think the museum is a great way to remember, but I feel like the people are more the story than the ship. We are the greatest relics from the ship, honestly. 
and we're here, we're fighting for our space, and we are still able to be jubilant and to just be proud of who we are. We are shouting it from the mountaintops right now who we are. It's, it's really a source of pride now. It was a source of shame back then, but now, yes, we're descendants of the Africans on the Clotilda. We're proud as can be. That was filmmaker Margaret Brown and Clotilda descendant Vita Tunstall speaking with me about the new documentary, Descendant. It's on Netflix right now. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Orion Pictures presenting Till based on the true story of Mamie Till Mobley's fight for justice for her son, Emmett Till, starring Danielle Deadweiler, now playing in select theaters everywhere October 28th. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Doubleday, Publisher of The Boys from Biloxi by John Grisham, a new novel of fathers and sons, crime and punishment, loyalty and revenge. In stores now and available as an audiobook and ebook. This is 90.9 WBUR. Bruins continue their homestand tonight as the Dallas Stars come to the Garden. Puck drops at 7 o'clock. More fog this evening with clouds and some drizzle tonight. Again, not too chilly, right about 59 degrees, not far from where it is right now. We have one more dreary day coming up tomorrow. Showers, thunderstorms should reach about 64 again. Then things dry out and clear out for Thursday. Should be sunny and even milder could reach 70 degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Love is Calling at the ICA. Yayoi Kusama's Infinity Mirror Room offers endless reflections and the illusions of space. ICABoston.org. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. On Capitol Hill, a group of progressive Democrats retract their letter to President Biden that called for the administration to enter diplomatic talks directly with Russia to get a ceasefire in Ukraine. Why the letter was sent, why it was withdrawn, and the clamor it caused coming up. It's Tuesday, October 25th, and this is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Medicaid expansion has become an issue in the midterms. Democrats are criticizing leaders in Republican-led states that have not expanded Medicaid. He has decided for the rest of us that we don't deserve access to health care. That half a million Georgians shouldn't be able to wake up and take care of themselves and their families. Also, how applying for college provides an opportunity for more than pulling out your hair, but a chance for growth. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden has gotten his updated COVID vaccine shot. As NPR's Tamara Keith explains, Biden rolled up his sleeve at the White House while on camera to spread the word today. The new COVID vaccines made to better protect against the BA4 and BA5 Omicron subvariants have been available for nearly two months. 
but uptake has been slow. President Biden waited to get his dose until three months after his bout of COVID. Get your updated COVID shot. Now's the time to do it. By Halloween, if you can, that's the best time. And that way you can be protected for the holidays. And please, while you're at it, get the flu shot. Fewer than 20 percent of senior citizens have gotten their updated vaccine. The administration is hoping reminder emails from Medicare will help reach that age group. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. The Pennsylvania Senate candidates square off tonight in their first and only debate. NPR's Don Gagne reports the race between Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Dr. Mehmet Oz is one of the most closely watched matchups in the nation. Pennsylvania voters are witnessing one of the most competitive and most expensive Senate races in the country. On the Republican side, the candidate is is better known simply as Dr. Oz. He has parlayed his fame as a daytime television host into an endorsement from Donald Trump and a first-time political candidacy. The Democrat is the state's sitting Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, a former small-town mayor whose plain-spoken demeanor and unconventional campaign style, he wears hoodies and workout shorts to most events, have made him an iconic figure this election year as well. Don Gagne NPR News. Ash Carter, who served as defense secretary under the Obama administration, has died. He was 68. Carter was a physicist, a weapons expert, and oversaw the initial U.S. strikes against the Islamic State. But as NPR's Tom Bowman reports, Carter will be best known for opening up ground combat jobs to women. Seven years ago, Carter went to the Pentagon briefing room and announced that women would no longer be barred from ground combat jobs, infantry, armor, and artillery. As long as they qualify and meet the standards, women will now be able to contribute to our mission in ways they could not before. The move was controversial among some in the military, particularly the Marine Corps. The Marines conducted a year-long study that found gender-integrated units were slower, less lethal, and more prone to injury than all-male units. Today, a small number of women are part of Marine and Army infantry units, and more than 100 have passed the grueling Army Ranger training. Tom Bowman, NPR News, Washington. The number of so-called unbanked Americans, those lacking either checking or savings account, has fallen. One big reason, proliferation of online-only banks. On Wall Street today, the Dow closed up 337 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Senator Elizabeth Warren and Congresswoman Diana Presley have been traversing the state today to encourage people to apply for the federal student loan forgiveness program. They say eligible borrowers in Massachusetts could have as much as $20,000 in student loans canceled. WBUR's Vanessa Ochavillo reports from the first stop in Boston. At the Grove Hall Library in Dorchester, the two lawmakers celebrated the millions of Americans who already signed up for the program. But Warren says their goal is to get all 800,000 eligible borrowers in Massachusetts to apply before the December 31st deadline. This time we have the great first half of a victory. We've now got the policy in place. We need the second half, and that is everybody take advantage of it. Volunteers were on site to sign people up, and Warren and Presley touted the short application process. Their tour continued on to Brockton, Worcester, and Springfield. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochevillio. 
Teachers in South Hadley and Western Mass have voted on a possible work action. They met today and decided if they don't have a new contract by November 2nd, they will implement the work to rule. That's when teachers do only the bare minimum of what they're legally contractually obligated to do and nothing more. Union leaders say this is the second consecutive year teachers in South Hadley have been working under an expired contract. The acting superintendent of schools says the district is looking for an agreement that is fair to teachers and fiscally responsible to the town. Worcester officials are debating what to do with a statue of Christopher Columbus outside the city's train station. City Councilor Sarai Rivera is leading the effort to have it removed. She calls it oppressive. We want to grow. We want to move forward. We want to pat ourselves on the back to say Worcester is a diverse city. You know, Worcester is a welcoming city. Let's make sure we are for everyone and what that means. The city council meets tonight to talk about whether the statue should stay or go. Rhode Island Public Transit Authority is being sued by two people whose personal information was compromised when the agency's computer system was hacked last year. The breach affects employees, retirees, and some former state workers. The suit also names United Healthcare, which administered the state employee health plan when it was compromised. Defendants are seeking monetary damages. They also want the court to order the Transit Authority to strengthen its cybersecurity safeguards. In the forecast, clouds hang in there tonight. Light rain overnight, a little bit of a breeze. Should fall to just about 59 degrees. Then tomorrow, a lot like today, gray, damp, kind of warm in the mid-60s. Thursday, a big change-up. Sunny skies, unseasonably warm temperatures could make it to 71. This is WBUR, 63 degrees now at 6.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. 30 members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus sent a letter to President Biden on Monday urging him to change his approach on the war in Ukraine and take a more proactive diplomatic push with Russia. But today, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, who leads that caucus, withdrew the letter and she called it a distraction. NPR political reporter Deepa Shivaram joins us now to talk through this back and forth. Hey there. Hi, Juana. So, Deepa, a lot has been happening here, but I want to start with this letter. How did they want the Biden administration to change its strategy? Yeah, progressive Democrats who signed this letter said they want President Biden to focus on direct diplomatic talks with Russia in order to end the war in Ukraine. The members who signed the letter said they wanted Biden to continue providing military and economic support to Ukraine, but they also said that it's, quote, America's responsibility to pursue every diplomatic avenue to help end the war. And the letter is clear that they don't want any decisions to be made on behalf of Ukraine without Ukraine's cooperation. But they also talked about how there are billions of taxpayer dollars going into this conflict in the form of weapons and humanitarian aid. And that ongoing war has contributed to high costs of goods at home, including gas and food. Okay, and what was the reaction like once that letter came out? The response to the letter was pretty critical off the bat. There were several Democrats who came out against it, and even some of the members who signed on to the letter were distancing themselves and saying they were just operating off of the intelligence they had at the time. One Democrat who didn't sign the letter said it was an olive branch to a, quote, war criminal. And a member of Ukraine's parliament tweeted and said she found the letter to be troubling and that you can't negotiate with Putin, who she called a terrorist, when they continue to kill. 
Okay, and if I'm following this correctly, this letter got sent out Monday, there was all this backlash, and then the letter was retracted today. What was the explanation for withdrawing this letter? The timing here is a little confusing. The letter was dated October 24th, which was yesterday, but it was actually drafted over the summer. And of course, since then, a lot has changed in regards to the war and Russia has stepped up their attacks significantly. In fact, some Democrats who signed on to the letter said they wouldn't have signed it today. Representative Jayapal said the reason that the letter got sent out was because it was released by staff without vetting, and she accepted responsibility for that happening. But she also said that because of the timing of this letter, their message to Biden is being incorrectly compared to what some Republicans are saying, which is to decrease aid to Ukraine. For example, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who would likely become the House Speaker if Democrats lose their majority in the election, recently said that Americans won't write a blank check to Ukraine if they're sitting in a recession. On the flip side, Democrats have been consistently voting to fund support for Ukraine, and that conflation is why Jayapal called the letter a distraction and decided to withdraw it. So the confusing messaging here was also seen as getting in the way when there are some high stakes here for the party, like the midterm elections. Okay, and have we heard anything from the Biden administration about this letter? Yeah, John Kirby, who's the spokesperson for the National Security Council, told reporters yesterday that the administration had received the letter. He said that they appreciated the sentiments expressed, but that the the decision on when and how to negotiate with Russia should be left to Ukraine. And he said at this time, negotiating with Putin isn't much of an option. And when you see, when you listen to his rhetoric, um, and and you see the other things that the, the, the atrocities, the war crimes, the airstrikes, against civilian infrastructure that the Russians are committing. It's clear Mr. Putin um, is in uh, uh, no mood to negotiate. And Kirby also said that the administration has been working with Congress when it comes to providing support to Ukraine, and they said they'll continue to be transparent. And the White House has also said they'll continue to provide support to Ukraine Mm -hmm. as long as it takes. NPR's Deepa Shivaram, thank you as always. Thank you. A dozen states have yet to adopt the low-income health care coverage provided by the Affordable Care Act, leaving hundreds of thousands of Americans uninsured. And it's become a driving issue in some statewide political campaigns this election season. Here's NPR's Laura Benshoff with more. About four years ago, Cecilia Spotted Tail, who goes by Biz, felt something growing inside her. I know something's wrong. I know my body. You know, I couldn't lay on my stomach because I kept feeling that ball. Spotted Tail is 53 years old. She lives in South Dakota, where she's raised five kids on the Rosebud Indian Reservation. She now runs her own small business. I created a flower farm. My business is called Busy's Bees. Spotted Tail says it took months for a doctor to take her concerns seriously. And she had no health insurance. By the time she would get it removed, the benign tumor inside her uterus weighed eight pounds. Spotted Tail scrambled to figure out how to pay for the procedure. First of all, I found out that it would cost about $54,000. To do what exactly? To do the surgery. Her experience speaks to issues with the Indian Health Service, but also what it's like to be one of the millions of uninsured in the U.S. In 2010, the Affordable Care Act started bringing that number down. It increased how many low-income Americans qualify for public health insurance, or Medicaid. But 12 states, including South Dakota, have chosen not to adopt that expansion. Spotted Tail eventually got the surgery. She's become one of the faces of the campaign to expand Medicaid in her state. 
we live in America and it's not like we don't have the resources. There's so many different ways that this will benefit South Dakotans. Zach Marcus is the campaign manager for South Dakotans Decide Healthcare. The initiative gets funding from large hospital systems and health-focused nonprofits. It's pushing to expand Medicaid by amending the state's constitution. Marcus says the goal is to close what's known as the coverage gap. We all know someone who is making too much money to qualify for Medicaid and yet still is unable to afford insurance. That includes around 16,000 people living in South Dakota. Putting the expansion on the ballot also bypasses GOP state leadership. I don't support it. I don't think more welfare in South Dakota is going to make it stronger. That's Republican State Senator Lee Schoenbeck, a leading critic of the amendment. Here he is speaking to South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Putting it in the Constitution is way past ridiculous. But five other red states have already expanded Medicaid this way. Polling in South Dakota shows a majority of voters are in favor. Democratic candidates in other states where Medicaid has not expanded are also making it a plank in their platforms. In Texas, candidate for governor Beto O'Rourke put out this ad. When I'm governor, we're expanding Medicaid. We bring $10 billion into communities. We lower your property taxes. People's health above politics. That's why I'm voting for Beto. And in Georgia, Stacey Abrams has hammered her opponent, Governor Brian Kemp. He has decided for the rest of us that we don't deserve access to health care. He has decided for the rest of us that half a million Georgians shouldn't be able to wake up and take care of themselves and their families. Both candidates are trying to unseat GOP incumbents. In both states, polling shows a majority of voters support expanding Medicaid. Cornell University professor Jamila Michener says it makes sense. Democrats want to point that out to woo voters. And it's also more largely one way of trying to create some accountability for elected officials who should not be able to ignore the preferences and the needs of their constituents. Even if Democrats win the governor's office in states like Texas and Georgia, they can't expand Medicaid alone. So far, a few GOP lawmakers are willing to join them. Michener says expanding Medicaid could also impact future elections. Medicaid expansions, at least in the short to medium term, are associated with increased political participation. She says the issue isn't just about physical health, but about the health of U.S. democracy. Laura Benshoff, NPR News. When Serena Williams played her last match this year at the U.S. Open, it seemed to signal the end of an era for American tennis. Oh, my God. These are happy tears, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be Serena if it wasn't Venus. So thank you, Venus. But then the newest WTA rankings came out yesterday. Jessica Pegula and Coco Goff are now ranked number three and four in the world, respectively. It's the first time two Americans have made the top four in the Women's Pro Tour since Serena Williams and her sister Venus in 2010. You know, it is a truth. Sports renews. Um, tennis renews. 
Liz Clark covers sports for The Washington Post, and she says both young women stand out, but for different reasons. Clark says the narrative surrounding Pagula, who is 28 now, is one of determination. It's not like she's at the dawn of a fascinating career, but it's a, a beautiful narrative for those of us who love those who stick at it, who stay with it. You know, she has not given up. It's a career of tenacity, staying with it. She's playing the best, the smartest she ever has. While Coco Goff, who is just 18 years old, stands out for her grace, power, and passion on and off the court. Of course, every player at that level cares, but you just feel her caring so deeply about her performance and, and what she expects of herself, what she demands of herself. She is also one of the strongest, most forceful, but mature young women I've ever heard, certainly among athletes, when they choose to speak about social justice matters. Liz Clark says that Jessica Pagula and Coco Goff are formidable forces on clay, grass, and hard courts. And she also notes they happen to be doubles partners. They're both ranked top five in the world in doubles. This means they're both very serious about improving their net play, like diversifying their game. On Sunday, Pagula just won her first big-time WTA tournament in Mexico. Goff's ranking, on the other hand, has many thinking back to when they saw another American teen sensation crack the top of the rankings, one named Serena Williams. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, grow through the madness of the college application process. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson's On Beckett. Bill Irwin's On Beckett, running at the Paramount Theater in Boston, October 26th through 30th. Get tickets at artsemerson.org. LabShares Newton, providing fully equipped BL2 lab space for biotechnology startups right next to Cambridge. Learn more at labshares.com. And the Boston Book Festival, in person in Copley Square on October 29th. Celebrate the power of words. More at bostonbookfest.org. Stocks came out on the plus side for a third straight day today. The Dow rose more than 1%. That's 337 points. It closed at 31,837. S&P picked up 1.63% to finish the day at 3859. And the Nasdaq gained 2.25% to close at 11,199. State lottery sales continue to slide. Officials say sales in September were down $40 million, nearly 9%. For the first three months of this fiscal year, they're down nearly 4% compared to the same time last year. Lottery officials cite inflation and competition from legalized gambling for the drop in sales. They're preparing to ask state lawmakers for more money for advertising. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. 
In the forecast, we should have more fog this evening. Clouds, some drizzle overnight tonight. Again, not too chilly, right about 59 degrees. We have one more rather gloomy day tomorrow. Showers and thunderstorms, maybe some heavy rain times should reach 64 again. Then look for sunshine on Thursday. Highs about 70. This is WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. If you have a college-bound high school senior, or you know one, or you are one, then you know this is the time of year that things get intense. College application deadlines are bearing down like a freight train. Essays and transcripts and SATs and essays and references. And did I mention more essays? The dumpster fire that is senior fall. That's how writer, podcaster, and TV host Kelly Corrigan puts it. She is the mother of two current college students. She recently wrote, yes, an essay about the process of applying to college and about how somehow something beautiful is being formed in that dumpster fire. Kelly Corrigan, welcome. Hey, great to be here. I want to acknowledge a here near the top of the conversation, the the privilege um, in having a conversation about the stress of college and applying to college. And you get to that, you know, that for a lot of people, the financial piece of this is as stressful, if not more than getting good grades or SAT scores. Um, you write about how your kid is about to be the central figure in a shockingly expensive venture with little visibility into what the family can bear. Um, but you argue that for the kid doing the applying, this also forces growth? I mean, I think these are some of the biggest questions a kid has ever asked of him or herself and of his or her parents. So if you're thinking about, is it kind of greedy to want to go to a private school? Is it greedy to want to go to a school that you have to fly to? I don't know what my younger siblings might need. So if I drain the bank account, You know, what's my little sister going to, what options will my little sister have? And I think that might be the first time that many kids are thinking in numbers quite that large. I mean, these are huge, huge numbers. So full disclosure, I have fought in these trenches. Um, My oldest applied to college last year. We will do it all again next year with my second I read with supreme recognition the section of your essay headlined, College Fear is Based on a Lie. What's the lie? The lie is that this is it, that this is a binary moment. And then if you, if you get to the University of Stretch Dream goal, everything will unfold accordingly. And if you don't, you're kind of screwed. Like it's just going to, the world is going to be an uphill battle for you for the rest of your days. And I feel it. I, I know that that's the idea that's circulating in hallways and classrooms. I know that most parents say the word college way too many times before the fall of their kid's senior year, where you can't just take it back with one statement. Like if you've been noting your whole life, and I only say this from experience, who went to what college? And then your kids are starting to look at schools and you say, it doesn't matter where you go. You'll be successful wherever you go. The kid's thinking, right, but why did you bring it up every time? Why have I been hearing about it for 15 years if it doesn't matter? Like, of course it matters. So I think for the parents of younger children, one thing I would say is make a decision with your co-parent 
about how many times you're going to say the word college. You got to start early <laughs> on the self discipline. Of course, because yeah. they're here. The children will listen. Huh. How you said I say all this based on experience. How did these conversations unfold in your house? You know, I really feel like at some level we blew it, to be totally honest, because it did come up a lot. It came up too much. I mean, we both really liked college. I felt lucky that my husband got an early decision to his dream school, which is a lot of people's dream school, Yale. And I got rejected by every school except for the one I went to, University of Richmond. And I went with like tears in my eyes. And it was awesome. I had the best experience. So I felt lucky that I could say to my children, look, you might be me. It might turn out that you're standing in the driveway with a rejection letters hanging from both hands. And you may drag yourself to some school that you don't think is right for you. But that's not the end of the story. That's the lie, is that the story ends there, in the driveway with the rejection letters. The truth is the story unfolds every day, and a lot of it's based on what you do. One of the lines from your essay that will stick with me is this. I will quote, If we agree that any one acceptance letter is not the prize, what could the reward be? Developing comfort with uncertainty? Expanding self-knowledge? Building new capacities and a sense of agency? Because that kind of personal growth is not too much to ask of this process, and what a grand outcome that would be. That's such a lovely way of thinking about it. But what a great outcome that would be. I know, but you know, you're fighting a culture that's sending a different message. So sometimes I think about all the voices that are in my kid's head in a given day. So that's everything that the sort of commercial entities are throwing their way, everything they're getting, all those um, mailers that they get throughout the fall that could fill a recycle bin, all the things they're hearing between classes from friends and whatever their college counselors are telling them. And then I'm just this tiny voice saying, you're growing right now. This is it. What you're doing right now is the stuff of greatness. But, you know, I'm like one person trying to underline one part of their existence. I mean, it's worth trying, but it's also humbling to think about the chorus of voices that's telling them otherwise, that's telling them that... It's this is only about the outcome. Well, and also the temptation, I suppose, um, for parents to get in there, roll up their sleeves and help. And it sounds like where you landed was the key. The whole point is for both parents and kids to figure out, uh, uh-uh, it's it's got to be the kid leading. It's not about the parents jumping in to help. You know, it's interesting. We're doing a series on Kelly Corrigan Wonders right now called Live from College. And so I'm talking to kids who are all the way into school looking back on this process. And I will tell you that every kid says, my mom thought I should go here. My dad really wanted me to go here. I mean, my dad practically wrote the essay so that I would go here. Like (laughs) kids end up in schools they don't want to be in and that they might transfer from. Because they felt it coming through, the message loud and clear, your father really wants you to go to such and such. Your mother would be so excited if you ended up at blah blah So the more you get involved, the more the, the blood's on your hands if it doesn't work. The more involved we are in our kids' lives, the less satisfaction they get to take from their achievements. Like every time we get involved, we steal 
that sense of satisfaction that's possible in big undertakings like this. It's the writer Kelly Corrigan. She hosts the podcast Kelly Corrigan Wonders and the PBS program Tell Me More. Thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight it'll be the Bruins versus the Dallas Stars at the TD Garden, 7 o'clock start time. The forecast, more the same. Overcast skies tonight, intermittent showers, lows about 59 degrees. Tomorrow, cloudy skies, showers, thunderstorms could have a few heavy downpours, again about the mid-60s. Thursday should be a day worth waiting for. Bright autumn sunshine, temperatures creeping up to about 70 degrees. Sunshine could return for Friday but it should be chilly again. Temperatures in the mid-50s. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Chestnut Hill School, leading the way in elementary education since 1860. Grow today, transform tomorrow. On the web at tchs.org.